Hey, Parker. Hey, Carrie. I am so excited to have Courtney Martin on the show. Courtney is a writer, journalist, activist, and someone I know you've collaborated with and have been in conversation with for many years. Well, I'm beyond happy that Courtney is here with us today. She's someone who can take us to a very important growing edge with her new book, Learning in Public, Lessons for a Racially Divided America from My Daughter's School. So welcome to The Growing Edge. I'm Parker Palmer. And I'm Carrie Newcomer. To the words and habit To us and how we live between the words. So, Courtney, I'm going to introduce you in a moment, but first, thank you so much for being with us today. Oh, thank you for having me. This is such, such an honor. I'm very excited to be here. I met Courtney about 15 years ago. She was an editor at an online journal called Feministing. And a woman I know said, you should check it out. There's this really bright, articulate 25-year-old who's reviewed a couple of your books from a feminist point of view. My friend did not tell me what this reviewer said, so I approached the journal with a little trepidation (laughs) and was deeply honored to learn that Courtney Martin liked them. We got in touch with each other, became friends, colleagues, and the rest is history. We've spent the last 15 years in an evolving conversation from which I've not only learned, but gained a partnership that has deeply enriched my life, like my partnership with Carrie. We'll post the many details of Courtney's resume on the Growing Edge site, but for the moment I'll simply say Courtney is a journalist, the author of four wonderful books and a popular newsletter called The Examined Family co-founder of the Solutions Journalism Network, which has a weekly column in the New York Times, and a past member of the TED Talks and TED Prize Committee. She lives with her family in Oakland, California, in a co-housing community, and I love the fact that her new book, a brilliant book, was written a few hours at a time in the splendid solitude of a VW camper parked in their driveway. (laughs) True fact. Let me open with a question. The book is is titled Lessons for a Racially Divided America from My Daughter's School. And you've said uh, this book is meant to start a national conversation about school inequity unlike any we've had before, a conversation with you. And that means with me, with Carrie, with everyone who has an opportunity, and I hope takes the opportunity, to dive into this really, really important book, which was a life changer for me. One of the many things, Courtney, that I love about your new book is that it's not another sermon about how we should get complex moral issues right. Instead, it's your personal witness, one that involves your family, about how one white person of privilege found her way into the issue of racial justice in 3D and real life in her quest, your quest, to walk the talk. So part of the power of the book for me is you took me there, as it were, walking alongside you and asking myself, what might this mean for me as a white person of privilege? So I'd like to start our conversation on the ground, which is where you always stand, one of the many things I love about you. 
I'm going to ask you to take all of us to that ground from, from the point at which this book began to form in your mind and heart. Your family moved to Oakland a few years ago with two preschool daughters, and holding all these values on racial justice, you wanted to know, what does that mean for me in action as I decide where my first daughter will go to school? Hmm. Well, you know, I think of the genesis, I mean, you know, I could answer this many different ways. One way is that the genesis was like way, 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 way back, like all the ways in which from the time I was a little girl, I was noticing, as children do, the gap between what we say about racial equity in this country and what I was observing in my everyday life. Um, so that's one answer is I think I've been writing this book in some ways my whole life because it's about that gap. Um, but in a more practical way, I think it really started for me when my older daughter, Maya, uh, was headed into preschool and I started to ask friends, okay, so what's the preschool deal? Like, how do I how do I find a preschool? You know, I was completely clueless. And they said, you got to sign up for the tours and then they'll tell you that there aren't enough spots. So, you know, it creates this sort of sense of um, competition. And then you got to, you know, go on all the tours. You got to ask all the questions and then you will get in somewhere. Don't worry. And then, you know, by the way, it's astronomically expensive, but you know, that's beyond the point. And so at first I kind of followed in line and I went on some tours and I kind of looked around and I was like, okay, so all the other people on these tours are white and and or Asian American um, asking questions I would never think to ask, like very intricate questions about three-year-olds when I was kind of thinking like, let's just create a loving environment where three-year-olds can play and meet each other and hang out. And I started to just really ask myself, like, where are the black parents? Where are the Latinx parents? I live in Oakland, California. This is so weird. Um, and that led me on this, as I've put it, journey of a thousand moral miles, where those questions led me to think so much about how this city, one of the most proudly progressive cities in America, basically has an apartheid education system, even in the public school system, not, not just that white families disinvest in the public school system and choose private schools, but that they actually um, navigate and strategize to get their white and or um, privileged families into just a couple of public schools in a city where 75% of the kids are black and on free and reduced lunch. You'll find public schools here where, you know, 70% of the kids are white and not on free and reduced lunch. So um, that's really where the, the kernel of it was. And I think, um, you know, like many, many things that you and I share so much, Parker, where we, we sort of like stumble down a, a wormhole of ethical and kind of existential investigation, it was largely around kind of that, that childlike wonder I had about that gap. How can I live in the most progressive or one of the most proudly progressive cities in the country, but be seeing such deep inequities among the kids here. Um, and what is the story we're telling each other in that gap? And how do I look at that story really closely and then see if I can um, kind of write a new story by living it, as you put, on the ground? Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm 82. I'm way past uh, school age in terms of my kids. But as I read your book, I became acutely aware of the parallel issues in my own life and mm -hmm. kept wrestling with the question, 
what does walking my talk really mean in these parallel issues, uh, rather than constantly falling back unconsciously on white privilege and doing what benefits me, but maybe not others who need it more than I. Thank you. Yeah, and I, I, the book itself, it, it reads almost like a novel in a way. And I was really so moved by your willingness to allow us to stumble along with you to the things that you were wrestling with, um, the things you were encountering, the questions, the, the deep importance of the decision, the choice of where will I send my children to school? And how does that work with my value system? How does it work with my great love for them? And I was really moved by the way you presented it. There were things that were so direct and so, you know, really thought-provoking. And, and then also with this really wonderful sense of humor yeah. about, yeah, you know, it's hard, it's messy, it's extremely important. And aren't we funny? <laughs> you know? You know? That's such a high compliment. Thank you, Carrie. So could you tell me a little bit more about why you chose to write the book in such a way? Like, it's almost like a novel. It's almost this documentation of the human journey of how do I walk the walk that I'm so, that's so important to me? Well, again, that is just the highest compliment to me because that really is my my greatest hope for this book is that people who might not read a more um, kind of straightforward nonfiction or quote unquote big idea book about education or integration or racial justice would be drawn to this book, which is more memoir with you know some journalism threaded in. Um, and I did that in part for for sort of um, strategic reasons that I I really do want to make change with this book. I really do want to start a different conversation and. I see the way in which culture shifts. I've studied it, and I really think it, it happens more through story than through the perfectly constructed argument, which we all know can fall on deaf ears if people's hearts haven't been changed. So part of that was strategic. Um, the other thing, which is a, on a deeper level, is about my growing edge these days has been around how do I talk about racial justice and white folks and privileged folks doing uncomfortable things in a way that isn't about setting myself apart from other people, mm. isn't about, um, you know, outwoking each other. Like, I've got the bigger yard sign. I've got the, I've been to more protests. My kids are more aware of, you know, gender fluid pronouns. Like, there are these ways in which I think white progressive families and white progressive adults, really. It's like we we try to make our, our point about what needs to happen around racial justice in a way that's like distancing and, and elevating us. Like I'm the one who's mm. figured this out and you are a hypocrite or you, you know, and, and even worse, um, obviously, vitriol for those who don't even identify as progressive, um, which we've seen how that flies in our political sphere. And so really in large part being mentored literally, but also through his writing and through um, some uh, organizing he's doing. There's a guy named Garrett Bucks who has an organization called the Barn Raisers Project. And I've he's modeled this loving anti-racist whiteness for me that has been so transformative. And so even though I, I was already working on the book when I met him and when I started to be influenced by him, I think that led to 
even more so this tone that you're talking about, Carrie, where I kept trying to catch myself throughout um, as I was writing and, and say, like, is this welcoming in? Um, and, mm-hmm. and it turns out I have very strong training for the other. You know, I went to like an Ivy League school and I've been rewarded for making very strong acidic arguments at times. And so there is a part of me that's very drawn to, I mean, I'm not someone who would humiliate others, but I certainly have this inclination to point out hypocrisy and kind of rant about its evils in a way that, um, I think Parker and I also share that (laughs) we, 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 we have to like play on that edge of like, how do you feel that in yourself? Um, cause it comes from outrage. It comes from the right instinct. And I also think the, you know, Garrett has modeled for me this like loving anti-racist whiteness. The other side of that, which Garrett is, I know, also trying to hold is, but that doesn't mean letting white people off the hook. It doesn't mean saying, okay, we're all just doing the best we can Um, because our best has not been good enough and it's not good enough now. And so throughout the book, I was trying to think, how do I how do I create something beautiful that welcomes people in and doesn't make them feel judged, but also invites them to look at the truth and invites them to think about their role in that truth in a very clear-eyed way? I think you did a brilliant job of that. Um, The the book comes out on, I believe, August 3rd. Is that correct? It begins to be available. And um, wherever you get your books, please check it out locally, online. So I'm aware that when this newsletter comes out on August 1st, our readers won't know the plot or where the story ends. And normally you don't want to give all of that away (laughs) if it's it's really a novel. But this is a journey that you took that was not only, as Carrie said, investigative in a really intriguing way really driven by curiosity, I think. Curiosity that didn't involve moralism. That, that's one of the things that really intrigues me. I hope to emulate you in that. You've always been my mentor in certain key things, and here's another one unfolding right now. Um, but I think it would be wonderful if you could give us some kind of flyover of how the process unfolded and you know where it landed you uh, in, in relation to Maya, your, your eldest daughter. And then we can come back to look more at some of the foundations on which that whole story is built. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, listeners may not know that, um, you know, we live in a country whose schools are as segregated in many parts uh, as they were when Brown v. Board was passed over six decades ago. And there's so many reasons for that. But one of the most important reasons is that people with the ability to navigate out of quote-unquote failing schools do so, and those people tend to be white and or privileged. And we've set up school choice in many parts of the country that are very vulnerable to this kind of strategizing. So it's not, many of us kind of think of like, well, there's neighborhoods, and in those neighborhoods, kids go to the neighborhood school, and it it plays out this way. That's how some segregation happens, because obviously we live in such deeply residentially segregated communities. But on top of residential segregation in schools, there's also a lot of strategizing on the part of white and or privileged parents out of these schools and a lot of incredibly vocal resistance anytime a district asks to switch things up, to do things in a more equitable way. Mm-hmm. 
so that's just kind of a general background so people who may not be thinking a lot about this issue know that like we are living in a, a country where Brown v. Board has completely failed. So any notions we have of, you know, Ruby Bridges bravely going up those stairs and changing everything, Ruby Bridges deserves all the love and all the admiration, but actually very little has changed. So for us, it was, we live in a gentrifying neighborhood. Um, There was a public school in our neighborhood called Emerson Elementary that was majority black, um, 75% kids on free and reduced lunch. And that just means they are coming from a family who has a lot of economic insecurity. 25% English language learners, so a very high um, newcomer population. And when I started to ask around about elementary schools, pretty much all the neighbors um, in this neighborhood and friends said, you shouldn't look at Emerson. And if you get Emerson, once you've selected your choices, which of course don't put Emerson on your choices, but if you get Emerson because the district just automatically tries to get people to go there, you can bring donuts to the admissions office. You can do whatever you can to make sure that your kid gets into the whiter, more highly resourced public schools. And so after a lot of, of thinking and talking and um, research, uh, my husband John and I decided we were actually going to send Maya to our local um, public school, Emerson. And one of the reasons for that decision was the work of journalist Nicole Hannah-Jones, um, who has just had such a massive influence in this country on helping people understand that when white kids show up in majority black and brown classrooms, resources change. It's not that, as she puts it, white kids are magical. It's just that where white families are, money follows. And so you'll find that in these elementary schools where there's a slightly higher percentage of white kids, all kids have more resources to get the things that they need. Um, So I'd read her work, we'd read her work. And then the other thing was there's a professor at Berkeley, Rucker C. Johnson, who's done the largest and longest studies on integration. And he's found that black and brown kids who are in integrated schools, and there's a dose relationship. So the earlier and the longer they're in integrated schools, they do better in school, they earn more over a lifetime, and they even live longer, like their health outcomes are better. And that white kids are largely perform at the same levels and, in fact, have um, a whole different host of kind of social-emotional skills. So reading all of that and, you know, overcoming my own fears that still existed because it's just always hard to do something your peers aren't doing because you're just kind of like, what don't I understand? We decided to send Maya there. Uh, She's now been there for three years, and it's been just an extraordinary experience. Um, It has not always been easy in the sense that mostly for the adults, it's not always easy. For the kids, it's pretty straightforward. (laughs) They just love each other and fight with each other and do all the things that kids do. Mm -hmm. And it's all completely normal to Maya in the sense that I think even the existence of this book, I mean, she's only seven, so there's that, but I think it sort of flummoxes her. Like, what is is the book even about? Like, what's the conversation (laughs) with adults? I don't even get it because she's... You know, just having her yeah. child experience of it. Um, but it's more, it's been harder in the adult sense. You know, I, I'm on school committees with totally multiracial and multi-class groups of parents. And um, even being someone who very intentionally diversifies my friendship circle and my communities, it's the most multiracial and sort of multi-class experience I have. And for me, that's like, what a gift. Oh, that's what democracy was supposed to be, right? Like Parker has written so much about this. And I know, Carrie, you've written beautiful songs about it. Like, oh, that's democracy. Like that was the whole point is that we would all be together 
trying to figure things out together. And here I am getting to do that at this school. Um, and by the way, my kid is thriving. So it's, it's been, it's not to make it, you know, sort of a Pollyanna story, but it's actually been just like a profound, profound gift. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much. First of all, for kind of framing that in a way, uh, because some of this will be really new information. The, the idea that our schools are still just as segregated as during the time of Brown v. Board, uh, and also framing it within the context of, of your community and the kind of, I don't want to say conventional, but maybe white wisdom, you know, the white convention of thinking about it. How do I think about this? Even among people who and parents who consider them, themselves to be very progressive and that it being very important to them, you know, to work toward a more equitable, pluralistic society. So, you know, thank you for framing that in, in the context of, of what you're working with. And, and, and I love that for Maya, it's like, yeah, <laughs> what, what's the deal? You know, what's this conversation? But it, it, is, it has been a really powerful conversation between you and the people you meet, the people who have our friends, uh, the folks you have interviewed. You know, and, and I'm also really fascinated with how you use journalism. I mean, you used your art form to really shape this art form of your life, the art form of parenting. And you, you did a lot of uh, interviewing and investigative work on this. Could you talk a little more about that? Yeah. I, As you can imagine, writing this book was a real moral quandary. Like, how do you live such a personal experience that involves so many people and then mm-hmm. put it all down on paper. There's a real power in that and a real danger in that. And actually, Parker and I had mm-hmm. what was really the the pivotal conversation that allowed me to write this book. I called him up one day and I said, I need you to do that thing where you ask me all the questions and help me hear my own inner <laughs> wisdom about whether this book should be written. Um, because I had written a whole series for on being. I had my column there at the time, and it had been really helpful for me and seemingly very helpful for a lot of other people. And so I thought maybe this is a book, but I kept kind of trying to resist it in part because of the personal reasons of just how do I write about other students and parents and teachers. And, you know, if I'm going to do this right, which I think I need to make it a story rich, personal, you know, investigation, how do I do that from a moral perspective? And, And so that was part of my resistance. Also part of my resistance was just, does the world really need a book by a white mom about school integration? Like, how will this be received in this moment where there's just so much vitriol around these questions and a lack of nuance is, you know, people approach these kinds of things with a lack of nuance that this book, even it it just is its existence might frustrate some people. Um, Anyway, so, so grateful to Parker for doing the thing he does where he helped me go, okay, like all those things are considerations, but the good that can come from this book and my own just sense of that this is really something I'm called to do is bigger than all those considerations. Um, So that was really why the book exists. Um, So Parker, thank you so much for that. Um, But one of the things that I knew coming out of that conversation and deciding to take this on was that I wanted to really make the voices of people around me as and their wisdom as prominent as possible so that I could sort of be witnessing my own whiteness and my own way of moving through the world, but also having a bunch of other witnesses who, in their own words, could say how this all felt. Um, So I interviewed 
many of the parents um, who are in the school, I also did quite a bit of journalism specifically related to a school merger that ended up um, evolving during the course of the time I was doing my reporting, which didn't involve our school, but two other schools, which were just like, I felt like at many points in this book, it was like someone was just dropping in the most perfect plot points possible for all the things I wanted to talk about. And this school merger was one of them where there's like a school in the hills, you know, highly resourced, which is asked to merge with a school in the flatlands, majority black, uh, majority poor, and all hell breaks loose. And the id of, of the whole city is unleashed in these school board meetings where people say things that they would never say sort of in polite company when they have their wits about them. But in these sort of settings, people really talk about race in the way I think that many of us actually think about it, even though we don't want to say it out loud. And um, so I did a lot of sitting at school board meetings. Um, I, I actually have had a couple friends who said, I never thought I would be so interested in a book about meetings because <laughs> there are a lot of meetings. <laughs> there are a lot of meetings in this book, which I probably shouldn't admit because yeah. no one's going to want to buy it now. But it's true. Somehow I think I managed to make them interesting. Um, but one of the most important interviews I did, which was an ongoing process, was with actually with my daughter's transition kindergarten teacher, um, a woman named Artemis Minor, black woman, incredible educator. And when she left the school, I, we had always had like a good, but sort of professional relationship. I got a sense she wasn't particularly authentic with me when Maya was in her classroom. But when she left, I asked if I could go interview her. She was creating her own preschool on the um, east side, East Oakland, which is a predominantly poor black neighborhood here. And she said, sure. And I went not expecting too much. And then she just unleashed. She just told me really how she felt about integration, which was is that she has tremendous doubts about it. Um, and I thought, oh, wow, like this is the stuff. So I thought, I'm just going to keep coming back as long as she's willing um, during nap times. So there would be like, you know, 10 little three-year-olds lined up sleeping in a room so beautiful. And we would sit in the kitchen and just like hash out the possibilities and downfalls of integration together. And mm. for me, that was both journalism, but also, again, a modeling. I was trying to like feel my way into and model for other people democratic friendship. Like what does it look like yeah. to have a conversation over many months with someone who's quite different and maybe even disagrees with you in, in a way that feels pretty profound and just hang in there with each other. And um, so I feel so indebted to her. I feel like she's a real kind of spinal cord of the book. Mm, uh, that's amazing. And yeah. I just want to say that throughout the book are these beautiful little vignettes and big vignettes of scenes that just come alive before your eyes. As I said earlier, you take us there. And those 10 beautiful three-year-olds napping while you and this yeah. teacher who's bringing ideas to you from a point of personal credibility and authenticity that might blow your whole book idea out of the water. Yeah. <laughs> that, that, there's a, you know, that speaks to the reader. That speaks deeply to me and, again, raises the question of what are the cognates in my life? What are the parallel situations where I might do the same thing? So I know that that the storytelling in the book <clears throat> goes on in wonderful depths and color and texture and flair. 
Um, and sometimes hitting walls and creating frustration, as Carrie said earlier, it's the mix and the mess that's so real about this. And that you picked up so much important information, new insights, points of view, things to reconcile in your own mind and heart for you and John to reconcile together. When you were talking about your decision that the two of you made to send Maya to the nearby public school, you said, we decided to send her there, and that's true. But I, reading the book, I also know you decided to send yourself mm. there uh, uh, as kind of walking that with Maya and with profound respect for what that principal, those teachers, the school board, etc., wanted uh, from you, as I think they would want from any parent in terms of engagement. I just, I'd love for you to talk a little bit about how that engagement has played out uh, since you sent yourself to school, mm, too. I love that idea. That That's so great. I mean, one of the things I, I feel very strongly is that if we could shift our mindset to be what, instead of, you know, what special programs does this school have for my kid or what rating does it have on greatschools.org or, you know, all the typical questions parents ask these days. If we could say, what community do I want to be a part of? What school community do I want to be a part of? That that's just sort of a very basic um, and I think wise question. So I love that idea of I sent myself. Um, gosh, and you, you know, you've written about this from so early on, Parker. I felt like this book was a process of definitely falling in love with teachers. I mean, I've always had such deep respect for teachers, but oh, I just love these people who teach at this school and and the principal, Principal Heather Palin. I'm just, you know, so profoundly moved by what they deal with on a daily basis, what they try to do in the classroom, all of the structural constraints that they face and continue to. Um, so part of you know, what being involved for me has just been falling deeply in love with the educators who do this work day in and day out. And it was part of why it was so important to me that the book feel fair and useful to them. But at the same time, I was really clear, and this was, you know, I think unfolded in the book. Um, I hope that both of you read this in it, that I my love had to be balanced with a demand for transparency, a demand for a focus on equity, and a demand for excellence, however we might define that, not excellence like I'm thinking A pluses, but that mm -hmm. if I just show up at this school and love everyone to death, and of course this is part of Mrs. Miner's lessons for me, then I might not actually be as helpful to the kids who are coming from low-income backgrounds, the black kids, the brown kids, the newcomer kids, as I think I am. But if I can show up, love everyone, and also say in a school site council meeting, hey, I'm noticing that our scores are really different for the black and brown kids at this school than they are for the small minority of white kids. What is that about? And do we care about these scores? If we do collectively, and when I say we, I really mean, do we, the black and brown parents and the white parents who are at this meeting, do all of us care about these scores? If we don't, okay, what are we measuring instead? How do we know that all kids are getting what they need to do what they need to be successful in life at this school? 
if we do care about these scores, then we really need to focus on this, not in a punitive way, not in a getting anybody in trouble way, but in a we're a community, clearly something is happening here that is is unequal. So we have to think about what do we do about that? And you know, largely we know test scores are just an evaluation of socioeconomic background. Um, so you know, the baseline is that we know kids who are coming into the school from low-income families are just coming in with a deficit of the kinds of things that help you do well on a test. So like a literacy-rich household and like other things like that. So how do we say, okay, no excuses, like that's the context in which we're we're working and living in, but how do we show up for those kids and make sure at this school they get everything they need? Which, as we especially learned during COVID, includes food and, you know, I mean, it's like schools are literally the backbone of our society right now. And especially during COVID, they were. We had teachers delivering food to their students um, throughout the COVID uh, experience. So I think it's it's like that for me is is the the challenge as a parent within the public school system is how do you love on and just like deeply appreciate educators and you know educational leaders in the case of the school board but also manage to show up with that north star of how are we being transparent and clear about making sure that the kids with the least are getting the most to be able to thrive in life. Um, you know, Maya is going to be fine. Maya has two parents who are going to make sure she gets lots of books around her and has art supplies and whatever she's interested in, you know, in our own messy, not terribly organized way, we make sure she has an opportunity to explore. We know beautiful people in our community who will give her opportunities. The other day I lost track of her on a summer day and she had a whole beekeeping costume on because she was like beekeeping with our neighbor Tom. So, you know, she's she's going to be fine. And and actually that frees me up when I know that, really in my bones when I know that. It frees me up to wrestle with some of these questions I've tried to wrestle with in the book of, okay, she's fine, so how do I show up for all these other kids alongside their parents and really understanding what do their parents care about? Yeah, so that really becomes part of your vocation for a while. And those are the terms on which I think white people need to enter into these situations with that kind of... And I love your emphasis on love, of course, <clears throat> because all social change that 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 uh, gets traction comes from love, not, not hate and anger. It's just a fact. And um, the whole nonviolent approach to social change comes from love, not not hate and anger, or, but it's a way of channeling righteous anger into something productive. And, and I think that needs to be said again and again. I certainly need to say it to myself, because as you referenced earlier, my anger can sometimes carry me away and uh, animate the wrong kinds of, of attitudes, words, and even actions. And I just want to underscore Courtney, your uh, prioritizing of teachers in this society. Um, you know, I, I, I have a long time, maybe too quiet campaign to name teachers as the true first responders in our society on a daily basis. Because the truth is they're dealing with children who come from situations where lives are on fire, bombed out situations. And they're dealing with that daily while 
politicians, the press, and the public often pillory them for their inadequacies, which are not on, on their tab. Uh, the, the struggle to learn comes from poverty, and poverty has been created by a white society which began from that point and has never gotten substantially better in, in fundamental regards. So can I plus can one and, and add a layer onto that, Parker? Because it's one of the things I've really learned from being in relationship with teachers during this time is on the one hand, their challenge is, as you put it, you know, they're putting out these fires, like the amount of insecurity. There's, you know, a huge population of unhoused folks here in Oakland. So there's they're dealing with kids coming in the door who slept in their car last night and obviously haven't done the homework, but also like are dealing with, you know, parents who maybe have addiction, all kinds of very like profound structural issues. But on the other hand, so many teachers have talked about they're dealing with the scourge of poverty, but they're also dealing with the scourge of excess, which is like when they do have white parents and or privileged parents, not all the time, but some of the times they are being expected to like make you know, very finite adjustments to like their curricular approach because these white parents say, well, for my kid, she needs this kind of thing. He needs this kind of thing. I'm not talking about, you know, kids with disabilities who need particular kinds of support. Like teachers are all about that. And um, particularly at Emerson, the school my kid goes to that has a very large population of kids with what what have, it's called IEPs, um, individual education plans, because they have different kinds of disabilities that's very much like part of the context, but I'm really talking about like a social maneuvering and a, a kind of always asking mm. for more, always asking for special attention, always asking for that's just so deflating for teachers. I mean, I've heard them talk yeah. about that experience and it's really mm. made me watch my own behavior, particularly being in a school where there is such a minority of white parents that when I am thinking about reaching out to a teacher thinking, okay, is this about like, will this benefit the whole classroom? And do I need to contact her about this? Just sort of putting myself in her shoes and how much she's dealing with on a daily basis. And sometimes I do reach out, you know, sometimes I say, Hey, you know, I'm thinking of a cute example, which is they talked about birds forever this year in in first grade. I don't know why that was like a big part of the curriculum. And I had a friend who was a, a very avid birder and he knows a lot of people are birders. And so I said, hey, would it be helpful if I got my friend to invite uh, one of the birders locally, a birder of color, like a, a person who loves and knows a lot about birds, um, to come speak to the class? And she was like, oh, that would be great. So we got this great black local birder who like talked to the first grade. So like that's something that I could think through. That's not really for Maya. She's actually not that into birds. <laughs> but it is something that could benefit the whole crew versus – you know, just sort of reaching out and needing kind of constant affirmation from a teacher about your kid or, um, and so I think teachers get it from both sides. You know, they're like exhausted by the poverty, of course, but they're also exhausted by those of us who just take up too much space. Amen. Amen. Yeah, absolutely. It's the kind of Johnny needs a trophy, even though he didn't win it thing. Yeah. I also, I mean, I was thinking about your conversation uh, your your thoughts a moment ago about you know that desire and need to love and appreciate uh, on all those teachers and also that balancing with demanding a certain kind of you know experience and quality 
for all the children, you know, so like that, that wanting to balance that and, you know, that loving, but, but clear kind of way of approaching it. And it seemed to be connected to earlier on when you were talking about um, mm. loving anti-racism, that, you know, to, to be in these conversations that, you know, white people should be having with white people right now, doing it with a sense of, of, of love, but at the same time, not letting ourselves or, you know, kind of off the hook for things that, that haven't yet happened yet. And that we're, that are, you know, that might be hard to approach or hard to talk about. Um, and it seemed like there's, there's a parallel there in an interesting kind of way with how you're dealing with a school and, and being kind of coming into the school yourself with your whole self and coming into this conversation about uh, white supremacy and anti-racism and our, and, 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 yeah, and how we're approaching so, that too. That's a beautiful right connection to draw, Carrie. Yeah, I think I'm still, I'm still, I think it's a lifelong journey probably figuring out that balance. Um, and, you know, I've, I, throughout the book, felt like I was really committed to trying to make as little sort of villains or heroes as possible. Um, my introduction into education, especially the school board context, has just been shock at how vitriolic and full of blame and full of objectification it is. Like I would just come home from these meetings just like, this is wild. I cannot believe that a seemingly just full of potential community can come into a room and just yell at each other, getting no further along in any kind of understanding and totally lose track of the fact that this is all about kids. Like, it, it's just the most wild thing. I used to have these fantasies, actually, that, which is totally bizarre and would not work. But, like, if we could put the kids on the stage, like, on the dais where the school board was sitting and have the kids just stare back at the adults so that yeah. the adults could remember, like, oh, yeah, this is about the kid. Like, the, what am I talking about? Because they just scream at each other. And it's just – it was so upsetting. Um so yeah. I thought in my own book, how do I portray that and really like make clear how absurd that is, but also resist my own instincts to make anyone into a villain, resist my own instincts to make anyone into a hero, including, of course, myself most fundamentally. I mean, my biggest fear with this book is that people will think it's kind of a white savior -y, dangerous minds, like white lady sends her white kid to a yeah. black school and is transformed I, I hope that anyone who takes the time to actually open the book and engage with it will see that I'm very much trying to resist that. So, yeah, I think so much of this book you're helping me realize is just about adults really like learning to relate to one another and be be honest and be like morally grounded. Um, <clears throat> one of the things that's a bit in the book but is so, so huge in my life is also just the social costs of a making a decision that most of my friends didn't make. So that was really confusing and yeah. brought up all kinds of um, hard conversations. And then to now publish a book, which again, I'm, I'm trying to do it in a loving way, but does implicate the choices of a lot of people that I love is a really weird thing to do. And I, yeah. on the one hand, people seem incredibly supportive um, which is wonderful, but on the other hand, I think do they, do they are they really gonna take in what I'm trying to say, which is that I am trying to draw a line in the sand. Like I do think there are things that we need to do 
as white privileged people if we're going to shift what happens. I'm not okay with everybody's choices, which doesn't mean I can't continue to love them. But, um, yeah. you know, and, and I think that's something that comes up for so much of us in so many ways. Um, and I think, you know, we often frame it as kind of how do you have conversation at the Thanksgiving table with your family, which is sort of a trite way of, of actually grappling with like, how do we love each other and have the courage to say that we really disagree with each other about some things and continue to try to hang in for those conversations. Yeah. And I think that's one of the things about this book that I'm finding so powerful is that it is about, it's very specifically about school and the choices you've made and the uh, inquiry you've made and your own, that journey of a million moral miles, you know, but it, it transcends to what we're all trying to do right now, or many of us are trying to do right now, in terms of these hard conversations and trying to walk as an ethical, moral person, making mistakes, uh, sometimes offending people. You know, I, it's like, I'm, I'm kind of a nice Midwestern lady at heart. And sometimes it's hard for me to push an edge that I know folks will not be happy with, you know, and I do it, you know, but it's not always the yeah. most easy and comfortable place for me. I think the conversation in this book, your experience and your story and all the storytelling in this book is like, yeah, this is this is how it works. This is how we grow. I really appreciate that you didn't try to create villain, villains and heroes, even in your own self, you know, particularly in yourself, but also at the same time, be really clear that, you know, there's a walk you're trying to walk the best you can uh, with as much information as you can gather and as much love as you can carry. And sometimes that doesn't make people yeah, happy yeah. around and, you. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. And then what do you do with that? Yeah. You know, and how do you work with that and also the same kind of holding? So it's very much about the education system, but I think it's very much about what so many of us are trying to navigate right now. So I, I, I appreciate the specific, you know, the specific thing you're talking about, but I also really appreciate the, the human journey you're talking about and it is a lifelong journey yeah and i it's it's hard i know that uh, carrie will share this sentiment it's really difficult to bring this conversation to a close uh, i think it's one of the richest we've had on our podcast and especially in relation to white people talking to white people about race which i think is a big agenda yeah. for a lot of us of the white race um, but as we bring it to a close, um, I want to say that the conversation you referenced where you called me and said, do that question asking thing. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Don't you love that? <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah, I do. I recommend it to everybody. Call somebody and tell them to do that. I feel sad for people whose definition of phone a friend is far less sophisticated than mine. I get to phone Parker <laughs> as a friend, which is a whole different level of, of inquiry and nourishment. Well, yeah. Well, I get to talk with you at those moments too and other moments, and I want you to know that that conversation had a big impact on me. It always is two-way, you know, everything is relational in this world. And the impact uh, stayed with me as I imagined you sitting out in the VW camper and writing, uh, writing the book. And when I read the book, I thought, hallelujah, this is an amazing outcome to where Courtney began with all this. Just a testimony. I want to say it's a testimony to 
to, to something I said in relation to those habits of the heart in healing the heart of democracy. There are five of them, but somebody asked me, if you had to boil it down to just a couple, what would they be? What habits of the heart are required to have a real human presence in today's world? And what came to me was two words, chutzpah and humility. And I see that so much in you, Courtney. And by chutzpah, I mean the, the conviction that I have a voice, I have experience, it's worthy of articulation, I have a story, I'm going to tell it and let the chips fall where they may. Because if it's authentic, if it's real, if it's mine, I'm showing up in the world, which we all need to do. And if it's off kilter, I will get feedback that will inform me that I need to to tell a new story, as one of Carrie's songs goes. And then humility is the understanding that there's a lot I get wrong every day of my life. And I need to be able to listen, especially to the contrary voices, in order to, to sing that new song or to tell that new story. And you model that. And I, for that, I'm just so deeply, deeply, deeply grateful. This is an important book. I want people to go get it. Uh, and I want people to sit with it in a deeply thoughtful way, understanding that it's a witness, far more than an argument. And at the same time, if a person has any sense of affinity with those old words, love, truth, and justice, this is a walk toward all of that in everyday, real, nitty-gritty life. Thank you so much. Mm. You, ca- you said twice that it made you think about things in your own life, and now I'm so intrigued what those things are. Well, what I do with my money, um, for example, what mm. I do with my money how I do my own version of expanding my friendship group locally uh, to become more diverse. What I can do as a citizen of Wisconsin and of Madison, this is a state which ranks uh, right close to Mississippi in terms of life chances for uh, African-American folk between birth and age 25 or so. Um, What I can do as an adult uh, in, in relation to public school policy, you know, with a Republican-dominated legislature which keeps you know, shooting everything down, how to use you know, my, my, as you know, Courtney, um, I've, uh, I've kind of treated Madison as a sanctuary city for me because I've spent so much time on the road uh, doing what I hope is some worthwhile heavy lifting and when I have come home, I, ha- I haven't wanted to be a public figure in Madison. Yeah. Um, and whenever, whenever it's come close to that, I've just kind of discouraged it, you know, um, in, in all kinds of ways. Uh, but now, at 82, not traveling so much, is a time when I might become more of a local voice. That's really um, interesting. Yeah. yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. yeah. And... and I'm very aware of how protecting my white privilege might cause me to say, "Well, I, you know, I got reasons for not doing that," but um, I'm 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 en route to overcoming all of those hesitancies or rationalizations. I think there's something so powerful. You know, I think you've read many times that I write about Louise, my neighbor, who's 83, 
um, in my co-housing community. She's such an influence on me. There's something so powerful about white elders publicly walking that walk. You know, I watch people be shocked when Louise will say something like they couldn't imagine that an 83 year old was thinking about that context. Um, I mean, all of us who know her know exactly what to expect from her, but you know, new people to her. And, um, so I do think there's something, I know part of being an elder is also needing to be careful about your energy and that kind of thing. But I do think it's just, there's something so powerful about the unexpectedness of an older white person is, and probably especially an older white man saying certain yeah. things. To go public is a different thing. And that that's what you're doing with this book. And, and I, I'm inspired by that. So you may get me into more trouble yet. <laughs> <laughs> that would be a real honor. Good trouble. <laughs> yeah, good trouble. Good, good like, trouble. Like hey. our RIP, yeah. John Lewis, right? <laughs> Amen. Well, we want to ask you if you have a brief answer to this and what's on your growing edge, Courtney, right now? And is it going to happen out in that VW bus? (laughs) (laughs) Well, just for readers' understanding, this is my husband is obsessed with cars and he convinced me against my better judgment to get a 1975 bright orange VW bus when Maya (laughs) was about a year old, my older daughter, and when COVID hit and we were sheltering in, we live in this tiny house and there was nowhere for me to get away from my children. And all of a sudden I thought, oh, the bus. So I would wake up very early in the morning, take my coffee into the bus, shut that big heavy metal door and write for a few hours before being full-time childcare for, you know, a year plus. So the bus turned out to be my biggest unexpected gift. Um, so that's the bus. What's going to happen in the bus next? Who knows? But I I think, let's see, what is my growing edge right now? I think really, you know, we're having this conversation about a month before the book comes out. And I'm just really trying to feel my way into how to hold all of this, how to hold these conversations. I realized one of our shared favorite words, Parker Paradox, that I'm like, deep in so many paradoxes. It's like I'm trying to push this book out into the world, but not push myself out into the world, not have it be about me, even though it's so deeply about me, but really about this larger conversation. I'm trying to really reach white and or privileged readers, but I'm also like deeply invested in people of color feeling like this is useful and you know pushes work forward that many of them have been doing for far longer. I'm trying to argue on one hand, like there are things we can do, like white and privileged people can do, like send our kids to integrating schools and also like that's not the answer at all. I'm trying to hold like we are, the structural issues are the most important and we have to shift policy and we have to change how school choice even works. But also that doesn't mean your one individual family's choice doesn't matter. So it's just like I find myself just like swimming in all of these paradoxes at this moment and trying to think of like, how do I hold that? And I had this great moment actually where my kids magically, you know, were gone and I grabbed my book and I read a few pages just because I thought like it'll help me internalize what I've done. And I was sitting outside and I looked up and there was this huge redwood tree because we live in California. And I saw this one little branch was like off kind of lower down, like a little brand new branch. And I thought, okay, that's me. 
that little branch, yeah. like the whole redwood is yeah. like all of the conversations, all of the work, all of the history. I am just this little branch, but I am important in the sense that I'm trying to do something and create a new conversation, but I'm only that little branch important in the context of all of the rest of this. And that really put me at ease of kind of like, okay, that's my growing edge is how do every radio interview I do or every conversation I get to have, how do I like embody that? sense of that brand you know like a little new branch so that's kind of where i'm at i think you just do yeah. it it's 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 chutzpah yeah. and humility and action thank you so much dear friend thank this has been guys. a joy the name of the book is learning in public uh, by courtney martin you can you can get it you can pre-order it already <laughs> and brilliant it's brave it's true it's intelligent it's loving and it has such a beautiful, great sense of humor. I, I just recommend everyone pick it up and then and then create a book group to talk about it because yeah. you're yeah. going to want to talk yeah. about and it. And we do have a yeah. book club kit that people can download. So if you'll go to my website, you'll oh. be able to find a, a little discussion questions and other things to help you along. www.courtneyemartin.com Thank you again. Thank you, Courtney. And uh, I, think, I, I, I think you've done it. Listening to The Growing Edge with Carrie Newcomer and Parker Palmer. Thank you for joining us today, and I hope you'll check out our next episode. And don't forget to visit our website, newcomerpalmer.com, newcomerpalmer.com, so you can join in the conversation too. And now we have a favor to ask. If you like today's show, rate us and leave a review on iTunes. It's the best way to help us reach new audiences and bring more voices into this conversation. All the music you heard on today's show was written by our own Carrie Newcomer. And much gratitude to Gary Walters for performing the song, The Clean Edge of Change. And wild appreciation to Allison Quance for creative envisioning, direction, and production, and because she walks the walk.